Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you on this day, this day we call Good Friday. What is so good about Good Friday? You know, those who witnessed in person these events that Bob just read, the story, those who were the original followers of, of Jesus, none of them would have gotten to the end of this day and thought to themselves, that was a good day. You know, over the last number of weeks, on our weekend services, we've been doing a series going through the Gospel of Mark called The King's Cross. And each weekend, we've been looking at a different event, moving us along the timeline, getting closer and closer to this day, to the day that the King of the Jews, as we just read, went to the cross. This brutal and terrible day, we remember calling it Good Friday. Now, we've all had really bad days before. I know that's true, right? Your car breaks down. Uh, You're stranded on the side of the road waiting for a tow truck. You miss an important meeting. You get called into your boss's office, and he tells you the news or she tells you the news that they're going to have to let you go. You get the phone call that a family member, somebody you care dearly about, has just died of a heart attack. We all have bad days. We all go through hard, hard days. But this day, this day is the worst. Jesus, Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night. He was arrested in the middle of the night, very early Friday morning. These Jewish religious leaders, they start bringing all these false charges against him. And in Mark 14, we didn't get a chance to read this part, but in Mark 14, it tells us that They blindfolded Jesus, they tied him up, they spit on him, they punched him where he couldn't see where each punch was coming from. Even in the very early hours of the morning, it's already been a really bad day for Jesus. So what's so good about Good Friday? The religious leaders keep beating him, and what started off as a trial basically becomes a sentencing. And why are they doing any of this? Why are they doing any of this? Why are these Jewish leaders punishing Jesus so brutally in this way? Well, it's partially because over the last number of weeks and months, Jesus has essentially been holding up a mirror to their faces, showing them their own faults, showing them their own sinfulness, showing them where they've been inaccurate and leading the Jewish people, pointing out, and drawing attention to their own hypocrisies. And who wants to see that in themselves? There is a a story. There's a story of a missionary who, living in a very remote part of the world with a tribal people, and one day the, the chief in his traditional war paint came walking by the missionary's hut and on the, by a tree beside the hut there was a, a little mirror that the missionary had hung by that tree. And as this chief walked by, he looked at the mirror, not knowing what it was, and a shock face, with a shocked face, went up to the missionary and said, who is that terrifying person 
in the mirror or in the tree, he said. Who's that terrified person living in the tree? And the missionary tried to explain what the mirror was and how it was a reflection of this chief and it's his war paint and the man didn't quite understand and, and he said, well, what can I trade you for it? Well, I, wanna, I want that. I want that mirror. And the missionary didn't wanna give it up at first but, but eventually they made a trade and, and the first thing the chief did was smash the mirror on the ground and said, I will never have that terrible face looking at me again. You know, what Jesus was doing with the, with the religious leaders is he was being like that mirror on the tree. He was causing them to see their own paint, to see their own masks, to see the things they were trying to cover up, to see their hypocrisy. And to those religious leaders, it was easier just to break the mirror than it was rather to deal with their own reflection. And so that's what they did. They beat and broke Jesus and made sure he hung on a tree. But according to the law, the Jewish leaders were not allowed to sentence somebody to crucifixion. They couldn't do that on their own. They only, the Roman leadership, could do that. And so bound up, they take Jesus to see Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the area. And from what we know about Pilate from, from Jewish historians, he seems that he was quite an insecure, career-driven man who was willing to do just about anything to maintain his status and keep his power. Willing to go uh, away from any sense of right or wrong. We know from Jewish historians that Pilate had a history and a, a tendency of mocking the Jews and using them for his own gain. In one instance, we find that Pilate had ordered a raid, a raid on the temple to steal the money out of the temple that was meant to only be used in the service of God. He took that money, he stole that money, and he used it to build an aqueduct in the city to impress his superiors, to make him look good. Pilate was the kind of man with a track record who was willing to cross lines to keep his power, to maintain his status. And so Jesus is brought before him. And Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews like they say you are? And Mark tells us that these leaders, the religious leaders have just bombarded Pilate with all these accusations, but he doesn't go into detail what those accusations were. Luke, in Luke's gospel, he gives us some examples of what some of those accusations were. Luke tells us that he's accused of, uh, they accused Jesus of saying that no one should be paying Roman taxes, which actually wasn't true at all. Jesus actually said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to the Lord what is the Lord's. He actually encouraged the Jewish people to pay their fair share of taxes. They also accused him of, being a, of, of stirring up a crowd of, of being a revolutionary, and Jesus did draw a crowd, but he wasn't stirring them up to take over Rome. He wasn't stirring them up to do that. He, he drew a crowd because of his amazing teaching, because of his, the miracles that he was performing, because of the, the way he was loving on people. Every accusation they brought before Pilate was false. It was false. But to Pilate's surprise, 
against these accusations, Jesus remains relatively silent. He doesn't argue, he doesn't defend, he doesn't renounce their accusations, even though they're completely untrue. And the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before, predicted this. He predicted this in Isaiah 53, seven, he said, he was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You know, I never had to teach my children to speak up when someone was accusing them of something that they didn't do. They, they do that totally naturally on their own, right? If one of my sons comes up to me and says, the other one pushed them, the other son pushed them, you know, if I go and talk to the other son and question them, and you know, if, if they're innocent, they're gonna let me know. Well, I, I, I only pushed him, or I didn't push him, I pushed him because he was trying to sit on my face. Right? I was trying to get him away. And then if I go to the other son and give him that look, you know, that fatherly look of, hey, you weren't telling me the whole truth, they're usually the one that is silent. The one who is innocent is never silent. And yet Jesus was the innocent son here. He's the innocent one, and yet he says nothing to defend himself. So this day continues to not look good for Jesus. So what's so good about Good Friday? In all of Pilate's years of trying cases, of judging criminals, I wonder, I wonder if Jesus was the first person to stand there in silence. I wonder if he was the first one to not give excuses, to not defend his innocence or defend himself. Pilate can tell something is not right. He can tell this is seeming a little fishy. He does not want, though, to be on the Jewish leader's bad side. He doesn't want a bad report making its way back to Rome, and so he has a master plan to play the game, at least so he thinks. It happens to be the, the Passover festival week in which Pilate had an annual tradition of releasing one prisoner one prisoner of the public's choice as like a goodwill offering to the people, as a way of keeping the peace, as a way of keeping the Israelites, you know, settled and, 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 and not revolting against Rome. And so Pilate's master plan that he's gonna double down on, basically, is to give the people the two most polar opposite choices he could possibly give them. Behind door number one, we have Jesus, this quiet, seemingly quiet, miracle-working Messiah, the so-called King of the Jews that Pilate can find nothing wrong with, no fault in. And behind number two, door number two, there's this violent, murdering Messiah, this revolutionary named Barabbas. Who do you wanna see walking free in the streets. Barabbas was essentially a brutal form of a Messiah. He was a political activist gone extreme. He was willing to murder and to steal to try and get Israel free from Roman political control. Now what's really interesting is that Barabbas was probably this man's last name. 
his family name, meaning Bar Abbas or Bar Abba, like, meaning son of the father, lowercase f. And some early manuscripts tell us that his first name was actually Jesus as well. Isn't that interesting and amazing? That, that the option, that the choice that Pilate is giving is between two Jesuses. One, Jesus Barabbas, son of the father, right? And Jesus Bar Joseph, the son of Joseph. One is a violent Messiah willing to take life, and one is a humble, true Messiah willing to give his life. The choice, this is the choice that the people were given. And in Pilate's mind, this is gonna be win, 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 like triple win, right? There's no way the people are gonna choose Barabbas, this rebel, this terror of a man over Jesus. In his mind, first, this is gonna be great because he's gonna fulfill his responsibility of releasing an annual prisoner, check. Two, he thinks he's gonna get to let a man go that he finds no fault in, in Jesus. And three, he thinks he's gonna get to keep a true enemy of Rome imprisoned. He thinks that's what's gonna happen but he underestimates the influence of the religious leaders on the crowd, and his plan backfires on him. The crowd turns into a mob and is set on releasing Barabbas and crucifying Jesus. And in Pilate's mind, he cannot lose the mob. That won't look well on his career, and so he, he caves, he caves. He releases Barabbas, and he hands Jesus over to be brutally flogged and being almost to the point of death in one last effort to try to see if that would appease the religious leaders and the crowd enough. But it doesn't, it doesn't. And Jesus is handed over to be crucified. What is so good about Good Friday? In Mark's gospel, Mark does not go into any of the graphic details of crucifixion. And that is probably because he doesn't have to. The original audience would have been all too familiar with the crucifixion of seeing it with their own eyes. But we know from, from other ancient sources that most likely there were probably four Roman soldiers who would have escorted Jesus to the place where he would be crucified. He was forced to carry a heavy beam called a patabulum, weighing probably around 100 pounds, while taking the longest route at the morning rush hour through the city so that the maximum amount of people would see him to deter anyone from defying or going against Rome. Weak from the horrible events already of this day, Jesus could no longer carry the beam, and so a random Jewish man named Simon, visiting from out of town for the Passover festival, was forced to help him. Exhausted, getting to Golgotha, the place where Jesus would be crucified, he's offered a gift. He's offered a gift, a gift of wine mixed with myrrh. Ironically, myrrh was one of the gifts Jesus was given by the wise men at his birth. And now he's being offered it at his death. 
and given it then, but he refuses to drink it. He refuses to drink it. Myrrh was a pain reducer. It was a painkiller. It was given to those being crucified to help numb the pain that they were going to experience, and Jesus refused it. He needed to be able to think clearly. He needed to experience the full weight of the sin of the world. And what was called the the third hour, about 9 a.m. to us, his hands were nailed to the beams, and that beam was lifted up. He was lifted up on that beam and attached to the standing post, and he was crucified. All the while, people mocking and insulting him. So what's so good about Good Friday? By the sixth hour, noon, the sun supernaturally disappears for the next three hours. The whole city goes dark, dark at the time where the sun should have been at the high, its highest. And if the suffering wasn't enough, darkness makes everything feel worse. It makes everything feel harder. It makes everything feel lonelier. All of heaven has turned its back and is looking the other way. And I wonder if the Jews who were there celebrating Passover remembered in their history a time around the first Passover when God supernaturally darkened the sun over Egypt as judgment for their sins against the Jewish people. And now Jesus is taking on an even greater judgment upon himself. The prophet Amos, living hundreds of years before Jesus, predicted that God would supernaturally do this exact thing at the exact time during the festival. Amos 8, 9 through 10 says this, in that day declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. This prophecy, this prophecy of the darkening of the sun at noon during the time of a festival of the Passover festival, the sadness and despair would be like the mourning of a father's only son, in this case, God's only son. So what's so good about Good Friday? Three hours, three hours into total darkness. It's now been six hours as Jesus has been hanging on the cross and Jesus musters up the strength to, to quote Psalm 22, one in Aramaic. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not the God or just God, but my God. My God, like my dad or my spouse or my child, there's a level of intimacy in that language. The intimacy between Jesus and God the Father. This personal, clear personal relationship that they had. Jesus, who had always been in perfect, this perfect eternal dance with God the Father and the Holy Spirit is now being removed from this glorious waltz and cast aside to be alone, utterly alone. So what's so good about Good Friday? 
Jesus cries out and he takes one last final breath. The king, King Jesus dies on the cross. And the centurion, one of the Roman soldiers who witnessed the crucifixion from beginning to end, who because of his job saw lots of people, would have seen lots of people die, probably by his own hand, by his own sword, would have seen many people be crucified. For some reason, of all the death he would have seen, this man, this Jesus, was different. Something about the way Jesus died was different that took this hardened soldier's heart and softened it. So much to say, that he, so much so that he said, surely this man was the son of God. Mark 15, 39. Interestingly, Mark 1, 1, the very first line of Mark's gospel says this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. Mark starts off the beginning of his story with the end in mind. And up to this point in Mark's account, in Mark's account, the centurion at the very end here is the first person to recognize and call Jesus the Son of God, to use that exact phrase. The amazingness of all of this is that the centurion wasn't even Jewish. To him, King Caesar was the Son of God. You know, when he would have gotten paid for his services as a soldier. The money that he would have gotten paid on it, those, those coins, you throw those up, they would have said Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, imprinted on them. Caesar, son of the divine, son of God Augustus. And yet something about Jesus, something about how he died, softened this hardened Roman soldier's heart to be the first one to call Jesus son of God not Caesar, and now this man, Jesus, is dead. So what's so good about Good Friday? What the disciples and followers of Jesus didn't know, what the centurion didn't know, what Pilate didn't know, what the religious leaders didn't know, what the crowd didn't know, was that in Jesus' death, the king's death on the cross, that that was only the end of act one that now was the time of intermission, but act two is coming on Sunday. The sacrifice of all sacrifices has been made. The atonement has been fully accepted. The final ultimate Passover lamb has been slaughtered. The total debt has been paid. The cup of sin has been drank. The darkness of the world has been conquered. The curtain in the temple has been ripped from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, the separation between mankind and God is no more. Act one is over. Jesus, the Son of God, is dead, but act two is coming. So what's so good about Good Friday? It's what Heather talked about last weekend. It's the great reversal. It's the great reversal. The curse of sin has been reversed. Jesus takes what we deserve and we get in reverse what he deserved. What looks like Jesus' end is reversed to be our beginning. You know, the upside down world is being flipped and reversed right side up. 
What looks so, so, so bad is going to be reversed to be so, so good come Easter Sunday. The great reversal of the kingdom of God. I wanna show you a video. This video, there's nothing graphic in this video. I know sometimes on Good Friday, you know, this can be, it's just words. But I think this video portrays this idea of the great reversal of the kingdom of God so well. So if you wanna go ahead and share that. Good Friday. How can one describe such a day? The wrongdoing of all humanity putting to an end an innocent man, the Son of God. This is the story of Jesus' death by way of a cross, all in one moment bringing death to the bright light of our future. He never stopped loving us, and yet this is the incredible part of it. Our sin stopped his heart. Our sin drove the nails firmly in the hands of God. All along, these were the plans. We told ourselves that we were in control, and this was deemed sufficient for all of us. The brutal beating, the inhuman flogging, the naked humiliation. Heaven watched and saw it all. Our rebellion, our guilt, our shame, erasing the very notion of reconciling us with God, our sin and our debt, overcoming Jesus. Here is our king, obliterated. The enemy laughing, his plans unstoppable. There's no longer the sound of freedom rising. Now God's people are utterly broken. Behold the chains of mortality. Yes, this is what is true. We had heard the stories of old. The lost are found, the blind can see, the weak are made strong. But now we are witnesses to this reality. God is dead. We'd almost believed there is a way of redemption. There is a life of fulfillment. There is a peace beyond understanding. Now we know better. For us, we can say that God is encapsulated in this one realization. The single greatest sacrifice in human history is finished. How clearly we can see it. So what's so good about Good Friday? Just one thing, that the blood of Jesus can reverse the curse of sin and raise the dead to life. How clearly we can see it is finished. The single greatest sacrifice in human history encapsulated in this one realization. We can say that God is for us. Now we know better. There is a peace beyond understanding. There is a life of fulfillment. There is a way of redemption. We had almost believed God is dead, but now we are witnesses to this reality. The weak are made strong. The blind can see. The lost are found. We had heard the stories of old. Yes, this is what is true. The chains of mortality utterly broken. 
Behold, freedom rising. Now God's people are unstoppable. There's no longer the sound of the enemy laughing. His plans obliterated. Here is our King, Jesus, overcoming our sin and our debt, reconciling us with God, erasing the very notion of our rebellion, our guilt, our shame. Heaven watched and saw it all, the naked humiliation, the inhuman flogging, the brutal beating, and this was deemed sufficient for all of us. We told ourselves that we were in control. All along, these were the plans firmly in the hands of God. Our sin drove the nails, our sin stopped his heart, and yet this is the incredible part of it. He never stopped loving us the bright light of our future all in one moment, bringing death to death by way of a cross. This is the story of Jesus, the Son of God, an innocent man putting to an end the wrongdoing of all humanity. How can one describe such a day? Good Friday. Is it an amazing how God can take something that is so bad, so evil, and reverse it and flip it on end and make something so good? I want to end our time together by pondering the last moments on the cross that we read about today, by taking some time and going back to the final moment when the centurion stood in front of Jesus and said, surely this man is the son of God. You know, I wonder, Mark doesn't tell us anything about him after that. We don't know any other details. You know, we don't know if he just left or did he respond in some other way. But I imagine that there was a moment of silence for even just a moment. And I, I wonder, I wonder if it's possible that while standing there, the centurion couldn't have maybe raised his hands in worship or got on his knees like a soldier in reverence and honor or if his hard heart wasn't brought to tears or if he didn't maybe have a conversation with God. If you are real, if this was your sign, forgive me for my part in this. Forgive me for my sins and putting him on this cross. Forgive me for what I've done to make this happen. You know, we are all invited to put ourselves into the centurion's shoes or sandals, I guess you could say, to think about how would I respond? And so I wanna take one minute here, one or two minutes. I wanna encourage you to close your eyes. I wanna encourage you to close your eyes and take a minute in silence to just respond to God however you feel like he's leading you. Maybe it's in one of those ways. Maybe it's to stand and lift your hands. Maybe it's to get on your knees. Maybe it's to sit in your chair and have a conversation with God, a repentant conversation with him. 
Let's take a minute or two to do that now. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.